0: Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher, Managing Director at Montford Real Estate, and I'm joined by Jessica Hardman, who's Head of European Real Estate Portfolio Management at DWS. Jessica, great to see you. You also oversee the UK business, and you've been at DWS best part of two decades and astonishing innings and you know you've had an astonishing career you've been involved with over eight billion pounds of transactions and working across a variety of different asset classes and different strategies and we'll come on to those in a short while but for anyone not familiar with dws and your career give us some highlights give us a few tidbits of some of the advice that's made you the executive that you are and some of the things that you possibly wish you'd been told maybe 15 years ago
1: Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for inviting me along. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, well, DWS today, maybe I start right at where we are today and I'll work back of my couple of decades of experience.
0: Sorry, I, this does sound really, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound great, does it? <laughs>
1: I'm not that old either. So, (laughs) So, you know, effectively, DWS today is a large global multi-asset manager, which has a strong lean in to real estate investing all over the world. So we are a global business. I particularly work for the European business. So we have assets under management at around 33 billion euro. And that's a large collection of equity strategies. And of course, a growing and really important debt strategies as well. So talking about my last couple of decades in the industry with DWS, it really started off when I joined as a junior transactions officer, having qualified as a chartered surveyor. Right back in the day, I got into real estate because actually my father worked for a small house developer in Herefordshire, And I spent a formative years wearing wellies, following him around a building site as the fourth daughter in the family. So I was informed by profit and costs and writing numbers down and doing good multiplication. And then that's grown up into IRRs, total returns and other such business that we do today. But... When I joined DWS, or for some of those who will think back that long, Deutsche Property Asset Management, I was really focused on transactions and supporting some high-profile names that were running the business at the time. And really, I built my career from there. So becoming particularly well-known for undertaking large central London transactions. And there's a couple of milestones in my career. Where I think it really helped me get profile internally and externally about the skill set I could offer the industry. One of those milestones is when actually Deutsche Bank decided to create a global real estate business. And again, previous names were Reef, and that was the global real estate business before we IPO'd into DWS. And that really gave me the opportunity to start to work with European investors and predominantly their. That was our German fund investors who were Mm. very active buyers of UK real estate during that time. And I got to represent some great portfolio managers in that team as they looked to expand their holdings.
0: And how's the investor base shifted over the years?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and probably leads me on to my next milestone very nicely there, actually, because during the global financial crisis, of course, fund inflows were much more muted as everyone took stock on how they were going to manage what was a very dislocated market. And uh, there I was still originating prime London offices, but really at very different price points. And so that is when I started to look with the team around me and great support from the senior management at widening our investor base, and particularly into Asia. And we built a separate account business from around 2011 onwards, attracting international capital into well-priced London transactions. And from that really started my strong connection with limited partners with investors all over the world. I was spending more and more of my time advising them around what they should buy and when and where and that developed then into the role I have today which is running European portfolio management.
0: And do you think that because that shift eastwards was it's quite a common theme wasn't it after 2008-2009 just largely because there was a lot less money from the conventional sources. Do you think we need to go back there now? Have we lost touch a little bit? I'm talking in a general sense, not about DWS, but I'm talking in a general sense of UK real estate and European investors. Are there as many flows of capital from the Far East as there were?
1: I think what's happened is that the levels of sophistication from Asian investors has really massively grown over the last decade. So yeah, yeah. when I was doing it, it was really me and a small handful of global managers that had the ability to access those, whether mm. because we we're in a multi-asset business and so we were talking to these investors. For this is others. what
0: Stuart Grant was saying, actually, just before Christmas. Stuart Grant was on mm. talking about some of his early career highlights out in Asia.
1: yeah. I can imagine. So
0: similar, similar. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Things. And at that time, a lot of those investors, you know, I had never invested outside their home country. So three of my big investors, well-recognized names today, I did their first deal ever outside their home country. So it was really new ground for them. But by God, they have really sophisticated. They've built teams. They like real estate and it's done good for their portfolio. So I think bringing the story to today's times, I think they're a great part of the investor community. You know, they're very focused on urban environments. They really like the living sector they've really helped bolster the logistics community and they're invested in a lot of REITs etc as well so they're a big part all over the market and I think together with European and of course US investors it makes you know Europe a dynamic investor allocated place makes my job more interesting and I think it gives us diversity a capital that all businesses want as well over the long term.
0: Yeah yeah and in terms of your own career growth, who were some of the people that really helped you on your road?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. So I was employed by Bill Hughes and Gordon Aitchison when I joined Deutsche Property Asset Management. So I worked closely with Gordon, who now runs the transaction business for LNG. And then through that, I also worked very closely with the head of our retail funds in Germany, Ulrich Dymetz, which would be a household name for those that uh, advise overseas European investors into the market, and really helped me develop my transaction skill and gave a lot of trust. And time to develop my skill set in negotiation and other such things that come with doing structured transactions. And then now I'm currently um, reporting into our head of Europe and Asia, Clement Schaefer, again, being a long term partner of mine, former CIO of the business, and now um, heading up. And most of the executive team that I work with in DWS, have grown up in that business, one form or another. And so we've been together for a long time, we trust each other's instincts. And that's hugely important. I think when you come to volatile times where you need to dig deep and work as one team to make good decisions on behalf of our investors.
0: Yeah. And do you think, is that now going to come back into focus, that value of experience, the value of expertise, This is something that we discussed on PropCast just again before Christmas with Bill Hughes and Ian Marcus and Lorna Brown. And we were talking about their experience of previous cycles. To some degree, real estate has got a lot more commoditized over certainly over the last 10 years, hasn't it? Is there a degree to which the current economic climate is maybe going to reset some of the entrepreneurialism back into the sector?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is headwinds. Right at the top of this, real estate had been, since the GFC, a really favoured asset class for asset allocators. So these are the big global pension funds that yeah, can choose yeah. you know between passive and active and stocks and you know equities and real estate and other things in alternative space and now that's not the case so much so we've seen that the performance from equities and bonds you know have grown substantially over the last year and real estate now needs to fight a little harder to compete and be allocated to so that takes a reset of the approach and what total return are you happy to receive from real estate
0: so is there an education process that requires with investors
1: Yes. And I think they're taking it almost at the same time as you are. I think the difference is investors are thinking through one, the denominator impact that they've had, i.e. real estate values have grown or stayed the same whilst other asset classes have changed in value. And that's a little bit of a lag. So they might in the actually
0: weirdly be overweight. Precisely. As, as by a, standing still, they standing still, Which overweight. is, which is a, slight, it's a bit of a paradox, Yes,
1: yeah, so that's right. And that was really a story of last summer, I felt. I think that story's unwound a little bit because we've had two more quarters of valuation. There has been valuation yeah, decline. Yeah. So, you know, that's a short term thing that goes on. So the next big question is, if we want to deploy again to real estate, when is the right time? And that's really where we try and add value as to giving them key indicators as to which sector's when, how, region, risk category, and we equip ourselves with the experience that we've built up over that time mm. in order to say, well, look back here, this is how this looked and how is maybe the economic environment looking similar or displaying different signs and how do we read those and how do we then execute on certain strategies? And so that has been a lot of my time, I would say in the last three or four months. Communication with investors have been absolutely key. So they take mm. a transparent alignment with us as we try and explain what we think is happening. Now, some of it has been a little unpredictable, you know, the UK market and a significant change in value, both on the finance and then the asset price, you know, has definitely been more deeper than we had estimated. So we now need to rethink that, but also see there's opportunity there too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for people that are just starting out in their careers, what should they be doing? What advice would you give to yourself if you were just starting out now? Because, I mean, when you, you've seen a few ups and downs over the years and I guess there's a degree to which you probably feel like you're back in your wellies and heropage. You?
1: <laughs> you know, the key difference there... I think, for when I started out is I was sitting next to experts learning, you know, either directly or subtly by listening in as to how they were navigating the markets, good markets, middle markets, you know, more volatile markets. And so for me, if I was a junior, I'd be wanting to have that exposure. I'd be really wanting to understand what is going on don't you know not to get stressed by it this is a cycle cycles happen we need to be prepared we need to manage we need to advise that is our role here and therefore listening to people that have had that experience and can draw upon those i think is really really important so i'm all for teamwork working in the office which is a topic we you know really trying to ask questions understand if someone has made a decision why they have made that surprisingly during the GFC, I may get a little diary to try and remind myself of some of the major events so that in the future I could try and refer back to this because it was such an unusual event that I haven't done in my career before. It's never seen such quick change of the circumstances. So, you know, not wanting to forget some of those nitbits that I thought that's going to help me in the future understand how I approach this and what other decisions I would make. So these are the sort of things. Read a lot. You know, there's lots of great press Case research you know really try and get under the skin of economically what is happening and what might be the possible options of outcome and how do i invest in around those
0: mm, good advice what do you see in thinking about the next cycle if you agree we are at the start of a new cycle which is a subjective view i guess what are some of the openings going to be for investors over the next 12 18 months because there is a problem of catching the knife isn't there Terms of where, and so let me explain the analogy. This isn't some sort of Tarantino reference. It's very much in case of your point earlier, Jess, on values still shifting on price of debt still moving, and that is leading people to sit on the sidelines a little bit in some parts of some sectors whilst they wait for things to land.
1: Yes. Now, I think you've got to be careful with trying to spot the bottom of the price market. In real estate, it's almost impossible because we don't do day trading in the equity, direct equity business. Deals take three to four months at best, and it's slower at the moment, and therefore things will change during that due diligence period. So my experience from the last deep cycle, the GFC, is that we started to buy in and around 2011, and we continued wholeheartedly till 2013. I don't think we quite got the bottom of the market, but we probably invest through the curve. And I think that's very important. And for most investors, they're in it for the long term. For real estate, you kind of have to be to a certain extent. Your long term might be defined, of course, as seven years or 17 years. But you know, you're in it to see through the cycle and see an upturn in the economy, your rents, your yields, you know, whatever it is that's driving your total return the most. So I think it's very important that you stay patient. So for this year, We like residential strategies. We like living sector, which is student, senior, co-living. These are sectors where we think already has received some valuation decline and sufficient enough that we think there is opportunities out there that are appropriately priced for the risk. And we also think it's a favoured asset class. So money is likely to return to that asset class the soonest the quickest and by the biggest amount and therefore wanting to be ahead perhaps of the demand the competition a little bit and start to really action that particular investment call
0: and mm. um, let's double down on that for a second so this is something that a lot of people are interested in in terms of how dws is approaching living you're looking at having a menu of different options aren't you for different partners that would be potentially usable for different entry points whether that's equity whether that's out, whether that's development whether that's just forward funding and you're comfortable with different layers of risk
1: yes that's right so maybe one step back in terms of our experience in the living sector or you know multi-family which is the largest part of any living sector universe so we have the fortunate position of starting our allocation to residential from Germany. Germany is the most mature institutionalized residential market. And so over a decade ago, we were starting to look deeply into residential when residential wasn't even heard of as an investment class elsewhere in Europe, and certainly not in the UK, and said, we think it really adds something to our commercial portfolios It as reoccurring income, a huge outweigh demand versus supply and it gives us an ability to access a different type of operational net income as well in terms of multiple tenants, thousands of tenants versus three or four tenants in an office block for a way of an example. So we started adding it to our diversified portfolios and then what we did all right, six years ago is starting to sort of transport that knowledge that we had to other regions in Europe. So today, roll forward, we have operational partners. Partners, where we're a huge client of these operational partners, important relationships for them too, all over Europe. Mm. And that is how we execute both driving further origination of ideas. So we have our own transaction teams, and of course, those of the operational partners, but also the ability to understand rents, to understand operational cost and drive some economies of scale. So that's the framework of how we look at the residential and living sectors as well. That gives us a great base. And so when investors come to us or when we're designing strategy like we are at the moment, we need to be thinking about what's the relevant return for the risk you want to take. So we're interested at the moment because it's a real moment in time where a lot of investors can get single digit or low double digit returns from the residential sector, where only 12 to 24 months ago, that was a very difficult thing to do because yields were down in the threes or sub three and for some of the very prime German markets. So there's a real window of opportunity for those investors who wanted to access that sector, but couldn't really stomach the lower returns that it delivered. And so we are talking to investors, both on discretionary, and non-discretionary options with development or without income producing. And I think that's really important at the moment. Investors need different solutions for volatile times. They need to be able to pick and choose a little bit, and we need to be ready to be a solution builder for them with our capabilities.
0: Yeah, and also as a reality check as well, which is that in most countries, other than perhaps Germany and parts of the Netherlands, there just isn't the investable stock is there but that equally gives you the ability to look at those potentially higher value areas like spain and italy where they're much more immature markets culturally people are much more likely to live with families rather than being in purpose-built student housing for example but they're starting now to move towards that and also these places becoming a lot more global as well
1: Yeah, I particularly like that about the living sector, the sort of diversification it offers within one sector, because you're absolutely right, we have different regions. We can, you know, buy and build within very urban dense centres. We can buy and build within commuter locations, which is another favoured strategy of ours. Europe itself is on three stages of maturity of the living sector, mature, semi-mature or still nascent market. And so there's obviously value opportunities if you're experienced at picking those trends. And it's layered with a huge demographic and supply-demand imbalance sort of global trend that's happening for most strategies in and around Europe and globally so when you build up all those different items it's a really great asset class to be in and you know I'm super pleased to be working for a company that spent 10 years thinking about it and now has the experience it needs to really move the sector on and obviously move our business on alongside it.
0: So what's the message to potential partners in living sectors across Europe?
1: Yeah so we're you know really open for opportunity at the moment of course we have great transaction team. We have transactions people in every country. They're hugely experienced, top people. And their job at the moment is to try and find that value. So we're talking to developers who may be credit crunched at the moment Mm. and need a different way of financing what might be a fantastic scheme and their skills might be really great. And we want to talk to those. Mm. We're interested in platforms. Those that are particularly leaning into sort of next-gen living, student, co-living you know the extension of that and we have interested investors who would like to open up in some of these arenas with our help so I think definitely it's a reach out to the people you know in DWS or myself of course Mm. and we'd be uh, you know happy to engage and see what's what
0: and politically do you think that investors need to be a bit more visible with politicians in simply having a message that says look we could be the solution to some of these problems Lack of housing, a lack of quality rented housing, a lack of safety standards, a lack of green energy standards.
1: Yes, I mean, the majority of real estate investors are very responsible, love what they do and really want to create a legacy, a great Mm. real estate... But above all, though, they've
0: got a commercial imperative to do that. It's not just because they're nice human beings. Correct,
1: correct. And we've got to align the both, you know. I think that's really important. So, you know, I definitely call out more political engagement. I think on the topic of more housing, safe housing, housing with the right services, housing where it has great infrastructure, you know, that can be schools through to local stations or road connections, etc. I think it is... And holistic approach and i certainly would more for the uk because that's obviously where i'm local and know the most about mm. you know really would love that discussion on how you know the private businesses private equity can help with you know needing better quality housing in areas where the biggest demand sets are
0: mm. and where do you think the biggest opportunities are going to lie across the over the next year or two in terms of different countries different cities you know, are there any particular points of colour that you've come across on your globe trotting?
1: Yes, you know, we like the major urban centres, particularly the ones that have strong either technological growth. Um, so you would classify London in that as well the one thing I haven't mentioned is too much is about office sector because that's another area we do like but Mm. the particular angle on that is looking at high growth cities and retrofitting buildings so you know looking at improving existing stock You know, residential is a different market you have to build in a lot of the residential markets because there isn't the supply you know you're creating something new with offices we have a huge supply of offices already sat there but many of aren't reaching the standards that we hope for and obviously not answering the net zero pathway that a lot of us have signed up to deliver. And so we need to be able to funnel investment into making those improvements, but also with the commercial overlay that that you know creates appropriate return against the risk of that. So that's another area where we will definitely be developing more this year as well as doing it with our existing portfolio.
0: Yeah, and this is obviously something that's come to the fore in the UK over the last year with a particular debate around Marks and Spencers. That was the touch paper for this that brought this into the public sphere last summer. And we've discussed this on the podcast before, but talking about whether there should be a policy that seeks to propose refurbishment as the first port of call with development. And this is something that's currently being debated by some of the REITs who are concerned that the policy is losing a bit of nuance. And that there will be instances where you do clearly need to drop something and build it from scratch, but also many instances where it will totally be possible to refurbish. Where do you sit on that? And is there a journey that investors need to go on? Because I guess anybody looking at the real estate space from the outside would think, well, investors only want to own the super grade A plus, plus, plus stuff and anything else potentially could fall by the wayside as a lot of these new regulations come in Demanding particular levels of energy efficiency,
1: well, it is our responsibility to educate investors around this space if you just hold out for the shiny new building that's being newly built on you know the premier street, yeah you've shrunk your investable universe to something so tiny you might do one investment a year, so you know and that's almost across Europe, so you need to be opening up where you can invest, but I do have sympathy with not every building is fit for refurbishment. You know, the whole point about refurbishing buildings is to stay off obsolescence risk, to be able to not have to go back to that building to refurbish it again in the medium term. And so... Some buildings, and it might be structurally, they might not offer the great floor to ceiling heights, they might not offer great fenestration, you might not want to be able to have room to put in your bike racks, your showers, you know, to support green transport, you know, those might not be the buildings we want to take forward into the future and what we can put on those sites are assets that are you know, 50 years life in them. And that's really important because the more you refurb and try and create that, obviously the more energy you're going to use, even though you're doing a refurbishment. So I think it has to have a balanced view. And Mm. I take that with residential as well. You know, when the permitted development regime came through where you could you know, in some cases, convert 1980s offices into residential? Did we create the best residential? Were they the best, nicest places for people to live? Not always. I think there was a rush for the value gain of that. And uh, we need to be responsible that we build or we support development, which is really pleasant to live in and work in and can stand the test of time. Otherwise, we're going to be putting more carbon into that building in really in you know 10 to 15 years time to convert it again Mm. and that's not the answer to
0: this and do you find your house builder dna coming does it bubble back to the surface sometimes (laughs) when you're when you're looking (laughs) at deals
1: There's probably an element you know keeping it simple which is what house builders of the scale that my father was involved with definitely did keep it simple and uh, you know there's no bad method of doing that actually to seeing the wood from the trees. Do you channel
0: him in when you're having meetings (laughs) with with architects and engineers?
1: I'm sure he'd like to think so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I mean let's talk about debt we touched on it a little bit earlier in terms of obviously the change in price of rates and the current economic headwinds but Debt as an asset class has emerged massively since the GFC, at which point life is all about the high street banks at that point. And the tables have very much turned since 2008-9. What role does debt play now? How do you as a business see that playing a role in your menu of offerings? And do you think it's an asset class that is well understood?
1: I think it's been incredible, the rise of the alternative lenders. I think it was a much needed part of the market to create a bit of diversification there, especially the heavy weight that the GFC put on the traditional banking sector. The rules and regulations that that sector is under for different reasons, I think has meant there was needed to be new entrants in in order to fuel The growing universe of real estate, the professionalization of real estate. So I think that's really good. And I think the opportunity for a business like ours, like you said, it gives a different way of accessing real estate with a different risk measure on it. So obviously, with lending, you're capped out at your loan to value are different from an equity play whether you're exposed to 100% of the equity. So I think pricing that and at the moment that is attractive pricing for debt strategies I think with interest rate rises and inflation that's a really fascinating strategy to be in and it gives an opportunity for investors and this is what they do to do a bit of both with us to look at our credit strategies, look at our equity strategies and blend the two and have that optionality to do that and understand what the dynamics are of those subsets. And, you know, I would absolutely predict a continued rise of alternative lenders becoming a dominant feature of the lending market over the next decade. I mean, I think we're really on part one of probably the pathway here, you know, DWS and the industry on how big that could grow.
0: Mm. And thinking about that, thinking about the refurbishment agenda, thinking about some of the challenges around ESG, I'm interested how you, within your business, and someone that's obviously... Come through the internet age in the sense that you know you left uni just as the internet was emerging, and you've obviously seen the sort of rise and rise of social media throughout your career, and data has obviously gone from being something scribbled on notepads with people in the pub now to being quite professional, quite progressive. How is data use within your business how are you having to evolve your reporting to take people on some of the journeys that we've been discussing in this conversation
1: yeah so. I'd say categorize data in two ways for a business like an investment management business. One is the data around our performance. Where did it come from? What can we learn about our existing AUM that will inform us of future strategies? Yeah. And the second part is data collection with ESG, which has been a huge task by the industry and an ongoing task. You know, it's not a complete piece. And I think they're quite rightly, regulators investors and ourselves have said well if we're going to try and achieve certain kpis with esg we've got to be able to measure them to say did we do it you know and Mm. therefore we need to be all over the data collection and we need to employ services to help us with that. We need to employ some people to help us directly with that so that we get sophisticated advice on how we manage our data and keep up with the data because it's obviously a living animal, this data. You're collecting it every day. It doesn't stop at the year end. It's an ongoing thing. The one thing which I think helps the industry and sometimes people forget a little bit, you know, real estate has had external certifications for many, many years, you know, it's actually quite a regulated market already. So you think of the SDGs, the PRI commitments, GRES, Briam, EPC, Neighbours is coming in. I mean, it's is- a fair
0: point in terms of the number of certification schemes, Jessica. But critics of certain regimes like Grezby would say, look, that allows some investors, perhaps not the more trusted ones, but the regimes do have a few holes in because they potentially allow investors to submit data that isn't independently verified in a way that what you do may be?
1: I think you've got to appreciate that the industry is still tackling the challenges of data because you can't turn the discussion another way and say not all sectors we can access data either there's privacy rules yeah. or there's utility companies not yet formed the ability for us to tap into energy data you know each country is different there's obviously countries that have greater proportion of renewable energy on their grid versus others that changes the face of data collection and the outcomes yeah, yeah. of that but where i am actually very optimistic is for sure there is a big drive i mean europe in particular is you know so ingrained now on the importance of ESG, the KPIs, measuring them, investing in people and uh, technology to be able to manage that, and have ultimately learn from it, you know? And I think that is a great industry to be part of, actually. And when I was referring to third party certification, you know, we have already created lots of frameworks for us to operate in whether you think they're perfect or not the fact that we have done this is not new it's just something that we need to evolve and i think in europe we particularly are really striving ahead and setting an example globally on how this should look like
0: Mm. and would it be helpful to have a europe-wide or global framework so that we can compare apples to apples
1: and that may well indeed come you know i mean i think we need to support those companies, those benchmarking agencies that are trying to build consistency over large parts of the data set and the region set. And we need to go on a journey with them and be part of that and be a big sponsor of it, which at DWS, you know, we are for that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Finally, then, bringing things to a close, where do you see Britain heading over the next couple of years. We've obviously had a considerable boom of investment in sectors like industrials. We're seeing the emergence of sectors like life sciences. We're seeing other nascent asset classes start to be given birth to around the EV charging and data centers, you know, without speculating too much. What are some of the things that you expect to happen and what role do you see institutional investors playing in making Britain a a fairer more equal society and this I guess touches on your role on the BPFs board that you've held for the last year or so.
1: The UK is a great investable location and I spend a lot of time talking to global investors about Europe and the UK and whilst we have been through a number of years of digesting Brexit and then Covid and no doubt it will be difficult economic year this year. You know, we can see some of the indicators on that already. Ultimately, when I look at the quality of people in the real estate market in the UK, together with the quality of real estate and its consumer base, I think it's very exciting. I also am a supporter of the fact that from a value perspective, whilst we saw dynamic investment capital growth in continental Europe over the last couple of years, UK never really competed at the same level. So it didn't take the big boost in value appreciation. And therefore, it's kind of coming off a slightly lower base. And therefore, we certainly think that UK could be a really dynamic investment play for us across multiple sectors, actually. And I think from a UK, from maybe from a BPF point of view out, representing an industry body, I think we really need to engage. We need to work with both the politicians, capital, either domestically or internationally, and our consumer base to really drive the industry forward on multiple different levels. Because ultimately, what we have is a really premier product, you know, that people like, they trust, and they think we're really professional. And I think the more we can talk about the positives, the better.
0: Well, fantastic. We'll look forward to having you back on to talk about more of those positives as they come out of the ground over the next year or two. Thank you very much, Jessica Harbin, Head of European Real Estate Portfolio Management and Head of UK Real Estate Group at DWS. Thank you very much for coming in today. I've been Andrew Teacher from Montford Real Estate. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. Please also keep checking propertyweek.com for the latest news and analysis. You can subscribe to us, add some comments, send us some guest requests, and we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.